During this decade, there were many difficulties to encounter, obstacles to surmount, and disasters to overcome. The Civil War of four years between the states, North and South, which commenced in April 1861 and continued till April 1865, exerted a very depressing, disastrous, and demoralizing influence not only over the country generally, but also over the church. In the South, a large majority of the able-bodied men were in the army. Ministers were sometimes arrested and others refugeed, as the term went, when the Northern Army invaded the country. Anxiety prevailed. Residences, mills, sawmills, barns, etc. were burned by the hundreds. Horses, cattle, and other stock and property were driven up north by parties who followed the armies for the purpose of plunder. Churches were frequently occupied for weeks and months as hospitals and rendezvous. The whole labor system was subverted and demoralized. The currency was vitiated and rendered worthless. Millions of slaves that had been regarded as property were set free and required immediate care and attention, not having been trained during their state of slavery to provide for themselves. For five years, the ministers in Virginia and Missouri, belonging to the Tennessee Synod, were prevented from meeting in the synodical conventions with their brethren in North and South Carolina. But notwithstanding this condition of things, there never was a truer and more faithful set of men. They worked in season and out of season. They attended as faithfully as possible to the spiritual wants of their people. They advised, encouraged, and cheered the wives and children whose husbands and sons and brothers had entered the army, often performing manual labor. Nor were the people generally less faithful. Strong faith prevailed. The exclamation was, Christ will take care of his church, and God will provide for his people, and ultimately overrule all things for the best. It is almost miraculous how the people passed through the war as well as they did, and how soon they emerged from its ruins and devastations, both as to spiritual and temporal matters. Surely no one who knows anything about the conditions of things in the South during the war and a few years after its close can doubt the intervention of the hand of providence. The lessons of faith, hope, and charity were learned. The people learned to depend on God rather than on themselves. It is easy to talk about faith when peace, plenty, and prosperity prevail, but it is quite different when all these are removed. The mighty hand of the Lord is indeed at work in history, in His Word, in doctrine, in life, in practice, at home, and in the congregation. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us today is Reverend Adam Kuntz, and we are back from a bit of a hiatus. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing great. Great to be here, Willie. Excellent uh, intro there for tonight or today or whenever you're listening to this. 
We are talking about the Evangelical Lutheran Tennessee Synod, or simply the Tennessee Synod. All right, guys, so what have you been up to on our brief break here? I did. I did absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I I did absolutely nothing. I've I've been wearing sweatpants the whole time, sitting in my house, so... Yep. What have you guys been up to? Adam has given up belts and lifting <laughs> right. for the entirety yep. of the break. <laughs> uh, He's moved his family into a spacious <laughs> single wide, has had six kids in six weeks, and uh, hopes to see a check before the cops when, get there. When, when, we're not, when we're not recording Word Fitly episodes, my life is without meaning and purpose. and So yeah, I just... I've been watching a lot of game shows and, yeah, waiting for the checks to show up in the mail. So it's good to be back, fellas. Uh, Honestly, Willie, I think you're the one that really has the biggest news out of all of our hiatus. So Yes, yes. I have migrated from um, the plains of western Iowa down to central Illinois. So I've taken another call to a parish in Mattoon, Illinois. So, you know, back in some historic Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod country, I'm kind of in enemy territory a little bit in Illinois, but nevertheless, it's it's pretty good, fam. A lot of good people here, good working class people. We got some factories going on. It's uh, it's good, you know. It's it's America, and I, and I do love her. So that's where we are. Weather has been mild, you know, mild winter so far. Zelwyn, how many feet of snow do you have? Uh, about six inches, actually. The weather has been kind of bitterly cold the past <laughs> couple of days. So, Adam, how are things out uh, in the cold? Very, very mild, conducive to human life and flourishing. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, you Quaker State, it was all good except for the prison reform. You know, yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, definitely. That way. I mean, it's a garden spot of the world. So, there's a sign on the way into Lancaster <laughs> County that tells you so. So, Right. All right. So um, we're going to dig into the Tennessee Synod. A lot of people just plain haven't heard of it. A lot of men are great admirers of it. And a lot of boys might take issue with some of her practices because, you know, reading history through a lens and whatnot. But I think it's good to discuss the Tennessee Synod. I believe there's much to laud and I believe there's much to learn from a synod that had that was relatively small but did a mighty work for the Lord in the 19th century. Yeah, I want to just explain where it came from to start with. A lot of people, certainly our listener base, is going to be unaware of the Tennessee Synod or only have a passing acquaintance because usually people tend to tell their story from their own perspective. And for a lot of confessional Lutherans, That means German immigration just before and after the American Civil War. Uh, The Tennessee Synod is from a different wave of settlement of the country. The patriarch, really, of the Synod, Paul Henkel, was born to German immigrant parents in Germantown, which is a section of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And the people who composed the Tennessee Synod, which somewhat confusingly was mainly was centered on Western North Carolina and Western and Southwestern Virginia, were largely Pennsylvania Germans who had come over in the very late 17th and early 18th century and had kept moving down the Appalachian Mountain chain 
through the Valley of Virginia, the Shenandoah Valley, and then from there into Western North Carolina. Some of them were in East Tennessee, and some of them spread into far Northwestern South Carolina, but the vast majority of them are in Virginia and North Carolina. And the Tennessee Synod actually comes out of the Lutheran Synod of North Carolina, a story we'll talk about. But just so people know where they came from, they're really from the first wave of Lutheran emigration to the United States, yeah, which, which predates the Missouri Synod by about 100, 150 years. Right. There's a time before the Saxon immigration. And then so the settlers come down right into the Appalachians, but they're actually there for a few generations before we see the real beginnings of the Tennessee Senate. That's significant. That's significant um, for a number of reasons, right? It, it is because, for one, the Tennessee Senate understands itself to be entirely American and for that to be unproblematic. So, for instance, at least at first, although this disappears after a couple decades, they do have, they do publish the proceedings of their synod conventions in German, but they also publish them in English. And there's really no conflict between German and English, such as you find in a lot of the synods that are formed later on in the 19th century. The other significant thing is that they are concerned to translate Lutheran theological material at first of all, the small catechism, later on the Book of Concord and, and other things into English. And that the theological writings of the Synod, which are mainly by David Henkel, whom we'll discuss, and Jacob Steyerwalt's work on church polity, are written in English originally. Well, let me ask you this uh, really quick, because we'll get into some specifics about translation and printing. But this is really quite unique at this point for Germans to really be printing anything in English pretty much anywhere, right? Yeah, that certainly for Lutherans, it's it's almost entirely unique. The thing that you have to understand from their perspective is that they do not compose in Virginia or North Carolina or Tennessee or South Carolina anything like a large exclusive ethnic block, anything similar in numbers or density to what forms in especially the Midwest in the 19th century with German farming communities and German ethnic enclaves in cities like Chicago or Milwaukee. So there is no equivalent to that. The only equivalent would be maybe in parts of Pennsylvania, and that's not where the Tennessee Synod is located. So the issue of how to be Lutheran in America while being also fully American is something that they face really from the first because they don't really have an option otherwise. The Tennessee Synod then, they're going to be a little bit reactionary in their origins too because Right or wrong, they do see a slide into indifference and rationalism yeah. as far That's as the right. broader Lutheran church goes. That's right. So let me let me explain how they think about the history of Lutheranism in America, because this, this perspective is also going to be unfamiliar to most listeners. They understand the men who founded the Lutheran church in America, that is largely in Pennsylvania, also some in upstate New York literally their fathers and grandfathers. They see the founders, also in Sweden, in New Sweden, in, in what's now Delaware, as actually confessional Lutherans, okay? So they will refer to things like 
you swore when you were confirmed to confess the doctrine in Luther's small catechism, or you're a minister, you swore when you were ordained to uphold the doctrines of the Augsburg Confession of Faith. So they understand the story of American Lutheranism to be one of actually being Lutheran, which is a little bit different from how a lot of our listeners will think about, so to speak, the Eastern Lutherans or the the earlier Lutherans, because they'll be familiar with a figure like Samuel Simon Schmucker, who is contemporaneous with the Tennessee Synod in the 19th century. So the Tennessee Synod says, we were actually Lutheran and our books are still actually Lutheran, which is why we need to translate them into English. But then we had a generation which they identify with the aftermath of the American Revolution. And they see one of the big problems of America as people being materialistic in their life goals and indifferent in matters of religion. And they see this, this, this rush of an obsession with freedom for its own sake, including freedom from the teachings of the Bible, freedom from the Lutheran confessions. They see that as a problem coming after the American Revolution. So the generation that is alternately rationalistic or pietistic or revivalistic is the generation that they're dealing with when they arise as their own separate synod in 1820. Right. So they see this degeneration within American Lutheranism from a confessionalism of, let's say, the generation of Muhlenberg into. All <laughs> well, we're going to get letters now. Yeah, we are going to get letters into <laughs> this is this is their own writing into rationalism or a pietism, which in the South, it, in, especially in Appalachia, is generally revivalistic. Particularly beginning, I mean, the, the the great fires are happening right as or just before the Tennessee Synod really gets going. Right. So if you're listening to this, you know, go back and listen to the Second Great Awakening episode and then come back and listen to the rest of this one, because that'll help you understand the world they're living in. Thanks for the plug. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And, and remember, folks, we are like trying to build you, especially with our American History podcast we're building a tapestry here, okay, or at least a large mural, if that's what you prefer. You know, we're trying to show you the big picture here of how this all fits together and why uh, history does matter. And especially an often neglected part of history in Lutheran education, to be quite honest. We're, we really want to just go basically from October 31st, 1517, maybe maybe one day in 1580, if you're advanced, <laughs> then, then you know, then move on to maybe something, some disparaging remarks about Billy Graham, and then wrap it up. History since the Reformation. You know, we are in many ways standing in a world built by, for lack of a better word, the antagonists in the Tennessee Synod story. You follow? Yeah, that's right. Because because anything that you think you're dealing with with American evangelicalism with indifference to Lutheran doctrine within the Lutheran church, issues of what does it mean to actually be a confessional Lutheran? How do you preserve your theology throughout generations when you're undergoing constant societal change and people are moving all over the country? The Tennessee Synod was dealing with it in the 1820s. This is 20 some years before the Missouri Synod even exists. So let me go into kind of how they came to be 
and then and then we can go from there because I keep using this date of 1820. That's when the Tennessee Synod is founded. They come out of the Synod of North Carolina, and the name is confusing because they're mostly in North Carolina and Virginia. They call themselves the Tennessee Synod really in order not to be confused with the other Lutheran Synods of America, which are all geographically named generally by state. So they're the Tennessee Synod, even though, and that's just so they don't get confused with somebody else. Within the Synod of North Carolina, there's a, bot- there's a lot of bureaucratic procedures, which we don't need to go into. But basically, you have an antagonism within that synod between a faction led by Gottlieb Schober, who's actually a Moravian, but serves as a minister to Lutheran congregations in North Carolina, and a faction led by the Henkel family, the patriarch of which is Paul but the leader of which theologically is a, is a young man, David Henkel, who is still a deacon and is only ordained as a pastor at the first meeting of the Tennessee Synod. Within that faction, you, 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 you really cannot tolerate any longer the dissension, especially over the connected doctrines of the person of Christ and the doctrine of the sacraments. That's kind of the doctrinal disagreement is the the nature of the person of Christ and therefore also especially the doctrine of holy communion but also the notion of baptismal regeneration those things are affirmed in accordance with the lutheran confessions and the bible by the henkel faction gottlieb schober and his hangers on oppose those doctrines really in order to be closer both to the german reformed and also to bring themselves closer to other american protestants there is a connected issue of polity where the men who found the Tennessee Synod do not want to join what becomes the general synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in the United States of America, which is led by the Pennsylvania Ministerium and which founds in 1820 the seminary at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which sort of still exists today, not as its own institution, but it's, <laughs> the buildings are there. It's still there. There are classes. Yeah, there's a library. Um, (laughs) There's a great book sale every fall. But (laughs) they don't want to join the men who found the Tennessee Synod do not want to join the General Synod for reasons which are very complex and we'll go into, but could be boiled down to a fundamental distrust of large church organizations and visible heads of large church organizations. They understand that to literally be the spirit of Antichrist and something which will inevitably destroy the confessional nature of the church, the unity of which is preserved by common doctrine and practice, not by common organizations. So they, they understand a... Gen- <laughs> I feel warm all of a sudden, yeah, you know? They- <laughs> and you and you can tell they spent some time in Appalachia. Yeah, they, they understand a general national synod. Those terms are equivalent for them. A general or national synod to be to contravene Article Seven of the Augsburg Confession, which says that it is enough for the unity of the churches to agree in the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments, and for them, therefore, excludes visible external common organization over large areas. So we can go into that a little bit more in the next couple of segments when we talk about polity, but those that doctrinal issue of 
contravening Lutheran doctrine, especially on Christology and the sacraments, and the desire for a large church organization are not separate issues for them. They see doctrine and practice and polity to all be united. And that if if a person is giving up one of those things, he's giving them all up for some connected reason. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break to give Adam time to breathe and maybe maybe grab some water. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us, Reverend Adam Kuntz, we're talking the Tennessee Synod. So, Reverend Kuntz introduced us rather thoroughly to the historical background of the Tennessee Synod, how they understood the history of Lutheranism in America, and how they came to be what they were. So now let's take a look at how they were. That is to say, what was their practice? What was their approach to, say, mission, evangelism, instruction, and organization? Adam? In the show notes, we've got linked for you the history of the Tennessee Synod, which was written by Socrates Henkel. What a name. Yeah, in the, in the 1880s. And that is largely a compilation of their synod reports. So that's our, that's our primary source for the history of the synod. And the thing that you will notice as you read through those year by year, because their synod met every year, it was pretty local. So except during the war between the states, they met every year. When you read that, you're going to notice an immense amount of activity in the parish reports, men baptizing hundreds of people per year, confirming dozens and dozens. And you might wonder where all those people are coming from, because in most cases, by the middle of the 19th century, these areas are settled areas. So you're not talking about massive influxes of new emigration or settlement in those areas. Well, this is interesting because this is also a denomination that never has more than 40 ministers. It doesn't. No, it does not. It is. <laughs> I it mean, is, it's peak. It is, it is right. very small. It is rather, in, it is intentionally local. And uh, although it is local, it is not necessarily what you might say parochial because each minister has charge generally, it seems from everything we can tell of multiple congregations. So he has a kind of district 
And there are constant requests, not only for churches from, let's say, more lax Lutheran bodies to join them, but also for ministers to come into new areas. Kentucky, would you please come visit us out in Missouri and see what you can do for us? Will you please come out to where we've settled? You know, a lot of Southerners settled in Southern Indiana. So can you can you come out there? So any place that people are, they promise to send someone to visit. So there's, a, there's simply a massive amount of travel. And whenever a minister dies, there is an obituary commissioned by the synod and placed in the synod reports. You can also read those. And you'll find constant mention of the man's readiness to travel. So they, they have a, a, a really interesting model of pastoral ministry, which is of, yeah, it's kind of like a pastor. A pastor is primarily a missionary and a preacher rather than someone who tends to kind of a settled area. An evangelist, we used to call him back in the Bible. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. You know, uh, and, but but I but I think that this is something we need to unpack a little more too, and is what we're doing. But Lutheranism is not exactly flourishing at any point in history in the Appalachians. So there is very much a sense of urgency that these guys have, and they understand the importance of the task. I would say, otherwise they wouldn't be willing to travel such distances to do such things. Uh, the opportunities are both small in number in, in some ways, and yet great in number, if you think about it, about actually finding Lutherans. It, it's very different, right, than, say, the Saxon immigrants or even like Winnikin and these guys who come a little bit later who are just going to these big immigrant pockets. That's not really what we're seeing with the Tennessee Senate, right? Yeah, that is that is correct. At least in the early years, most ministers are fluent in both German and English, meaning conversationally and homiletically fluent, not just that they can read both languages. So there is enough of a German-speaking enclave in some of these areas, I think especially Catawba County, North Carolina, and Augusta County, Virginia, that they can gather people who are German speakers, who might be Lutheran or Reformed, you know, ancestrally. However, Something that you also notice if you read the Synod reports carefully is even among the ministers, but also among the delegates, are Scots-Irish and English names from the first, meaning that the ministers are also fluent in English and are calling people to faith, calling people to the evangelical Lutheran church in English, regardless of ethnicity, from the first. So they are not ethnically specific in the way that an immigrant denomination might be. They are evangelistic in both German and English. And they also are calling slaves to faith. That is also listed in the Synod reports. They are preaching in German and English. Uh, basically, no, that can't be true listed. because I read in very reputable history blogs that slaves could not be taught the Bible. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that seems not to have been true. Now the numbers, the numbers are not that big. They're biggest in Catawba County, and that probably reflects. Well, there's yeah, there's just not the, the right. I mean, you're you're in the northern, you're in the northern part of the South, and I don't mean that culturally. I mean that geographically. So you don't have the sheer numbers. I don't know. We don't want to talk about slavery that much. A lot but, of uh, listeners probably don't 
are, are probably not aware, uh, you know, of, but I mean, Appalachia has relatively big, ju- just because of what arable land it does have is not conducive to the kind of giant field crops for which slavery was, you know, helpful for cultivation. So it, it, they don't have giant numbers of slaves where the te- Tennessee Senate is, generally speaking. Right. But, but it is, you know, it is a significant thing here for us to point out. So they're, they are evangelizing everyone and they are aggressively evangelistic in the face of revivalism, which they firmly and explicitly eschew. So exactly. I mean, would you talk about what the new measures are specifically that, that they're opposing? Yeah. I mean, especially at this time, they're very new, (laughs) but yeah, they come to be known as the new measures. It's, it's essentially what we talked about in the second great awakening episode, sort of emotional preaching, emotionally manipulative preaching. And I, and I don't mean that facetiously for a guy like say Charles Finney, it's intentionally emotionalism. And, and he admits to that. The idea is to work someone up big outdoor meetings. Okay. Nothing inherently sinful about that, but what they turn into, I suppose, get essentially getting new decisions, new converts via ecstatic preaching music, perhaps they're right in the heart of, especially as they get into Kentucky, you've, you've had the great revival already and you've had Cane Ridge already, right? What are they dealing with? They're dealing with people who are being introduced to new doctrines, to new ways of doing the church, wherein your salvation is sort of contingent upon this decision you make or the sincerity of your response to the gospel offer. And what they mean by that is they want you to wail. They want you to have some sort of ecstatic experience. So you end up with some very disturbing things happening, like in the Great Revival, for example, uh, people barking like dogs, people rolling around on the floor, that kind of thing. But the general idea is to get people excited and really whooped up for that revival. And then I'm sure the Tennessee Synod people saw the immediate dangers of that, false conversions and false manifestations of the Holy Ghost. But by this time, even as early as 1820, they've seen the um, long-term or longer-term effects of revivalism where people are fervent for like three to six weeks, right? And then their faith has already fallen away. So you look at some of these sites of these great revivals from upstate New York all the way down to the Appalachians, the Appalachians, and and you'll find reports of revivalists coming back three months later and finding empty church buildings. Wasn't this what you referred to in the Second Great Awakening as the burned over district? I know that was more New York, but... Yeah, yeah. The burned over district, yeah. And and the burned over district ends up having a, a double meaning, right? So initially, it's the fires, it refers to the fire of revival. So they would be all caught up in it. But then it comes to have this second meaning of basically the place is ashen, right? Or it's so charged, so charred over that the gospel can no longer take root there. Right. And I mean, you had a a wide variety of groups, I mean, just in that region alone that they're dealing with in, in the revivalistic period, saying all kinds of things. And, and, you know, and Adam specifically mentioned New Measures, which, again, is tied directly into lawyer-turned-revivalist Charles Finney. You know, he's all about the anxious bench, which you would know better in evangelical circles today as the altar, which is not our, a table, you know, for the sacrament, but is rather a place where you go to sort of pray it out, <laughs> you know, or, you know, say the sinner's prayer. You know, other New Measures, though, are s- simply things like Finney allowing 
women to pray in mixed public meetings, right? Or even praying in in the in vulgar colloquial language. So what the Tennessee Senate is seeing is not only these sort of crazy sermons, these these emotionalistic kind of approaches, but they're also seeing the quite frankly degeneracy taking root in society because of it. I mean, they're and they're what they're seeing and their people are concerned about, they specifically mention, is that the Lutherans in the General Synod and then during and after the Civil War, the United Synod of the South, Lutherans in those churches are themselves adopting new measures. Yeah, because it's very tempting, isn't it? I mean, they're seeing these large numbers. And then it's more than just the numbers, though, because that's kind of the easy way to do this history, to say they saw the numbers and they saw the reaction to it, and so they adopted it. And now that now part of that is true, but in a short period of time, these new measures become the normal means to the American Christian public so that they won't even consider a church that doesn't have these things. So in a very, very quick amount of time, it becomes the new normal for American Christianity. And I don't think we can discount that. So it's not only a case of appealing to revivalism for the sake of of getting more people in it's for the sake of being american or being part of the new christian identity in in the united states and i i think that to to that the tennessee senate opposes with some really for america very strange things like their insistence on the importance of the small catechism in their churches and their refusal of intercommunion, that's the term they use, right, we would right. call it maybe open communion, their refusal of open communion, their insistence on the practice of closed communion. However, I, one thing that I do think, besides their evangelistic fervor, that they do use rather consciously to oppose the temptations in their in their religious environment, whenever you read an obituary of a minister they will mention, if they can at all compliment him in this way, the power and the eloquence and the frequency of his preaching. So they do not they do not run away from an American religious environment in which powerful, eloquent, frequent preaching is really important and people expect it. They in fact say, we will be more powerful, more fervent, and more frequent in our preaching. We will be better preachers than anyone. And they'll mention, the, you know, they'll tally up, <laughs> this is how many thousand sermons this man preached yeah. in his ministry. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll say, and he preached well, two to three pietism. times a Sabbath. And they called it the Sabbath. You know, this is very, uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very important to them. And you can tell that this is primarily what they're doing. And it's it's something in which they train because they have two grades to the ministry, and maybe we'll talk about that in the next segment, but they have pastor and deacon. And when you start out in the ministry, when you're first accepted by the synod for the ministry, you become a deacon and you, can, you can't consecrate the sacrament. You can baptize under certain conditions, but mostly what you do is you teach the catechism and you preach. And those are those are the most basic things, and that's what you start with. And for a couple of years, under the supervision of a pastor, that's what you do. You teach the catechism and you preach. And those are the building blocks of the ministry, because when you become a pastor, yeah, now you can celebrate the sacrament, 
but they're not going to tally up how many times you celebrated the sacrament in your obituary. They're going to say, this is, this is how many times if, he preached. It's almost as if Lutherans put an emphasis on the preached word as a means of grace, if I didn't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> well, but now their education of pastors, though, was, that was their, their education, right? To have it apprenticed basically to somebody who's already a pastor. Yeah, they are. They are, well, they are. They're very against seminaries, not because they're against the learning, but because they believe seminaries. It's the same suspicion as they have with national synods. Seminaries will monopolize and also abstract ministry from its setting within the within the local proclamation of the gospel, and something, some kind of unbiblical requirement will creep in. And it will frustrate the proclamation of the gospel. That's their concern. So they are against seminaries. Now, when they eventually amalgamate into the United Synod of the South in the 1880s, that goes away. And we'll talk about that later. But throughout most of their history, they they have an apprentice model. So what you have to do is you have to acquire what's called a liberal education, which at the time is a, let's say, a classical education. You have to know Latin and Greek. Yeah, back before liberal arts was a bad thing. Right. You have to acquire a classical education. That is a college education in the 19th century. And after you do that, and there was a synod fund to help to help you do that, but it wasn't funded and they didn't have their own college until the 1870s. So you do that and then you come under the care of the synod and you are apprenticed to a minister and you first they ordain you as a deacon. And so under the care of that minister, you learn how to be a pastor. It's similar to what listeners might be familiar with as the vicarage model, but it's really the way that they train. And you do that for a couple of years, and then Synod ordains you to be a pastor. So how much debt would you think that in that model they would come out with just off the top of your – yeah. How much debt? Uh, I'd say it, about $0 Confederate or – Right, in or gold though. You know. But <laughs> – no, it is, it is interesting. And it also – I mean it, it's, it seems healthier, you know, a pastor as tradesman, you know, or, or the office as a trade – it seems a little healthier than than as profession or maybe some hoop to jump through before so I can pretend to read Old Testament literature and, you know, write scholarly papers and present them, that kind of thing. It, I, I got to be honest, I kind of like that model. I don't know how we would implement it today, considering, uh, you know, a lot of things, but there is something to be admired in that approach, even if it is built from suspicion, which I also like. If it well, I mean, if it seems odd to the listeners, it 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 is certainly maintained out of a suspicion of seminaries and centralization, but it's also the original model in American Lutheranism. So until the founding of the theological seminary at Gettysburg, that is the only way that Lutheran pastors became ministers in the United States. So they're maintaining an older model in the same way that the localism of their synod is an older model rather than having a nationalized church body. So that's, that's also something about them. It's, you know, it's sort of like the Amish, right? I mean, the Amish are not unique in the 1890s, but by the 1990s, they're unique. The Tennessee synod in many ways preserves older ways of doing things, more local ways or the apprenticeship model rather than a seminary model of pastoral training. So they they hold on to old ways 
in some things, they're very innovative. They're printing, which comes out of New Market, Virginia, which is notable for being where the VMI cadets were called into action during the Civil War at the Battle of New Market. New Market is also where they had their printing press. And it's where they first produced something called the Christian Catechism, which is a Paul Henkel production based on Luther's small catechism. And then they print Luther's small catechism in English in their own translation. And then in 1851, in a first edition, and then a much revised, I think much better, more faithful translation in 1854, they produce the first complete translation of the Book of Concord. That is the Lutheran confessional documents from the 16th century. It's called, if you're looking for it, I we found copies on the internet before. They called it Christian Concordia. Yeah. And so there are there are multiple printings, but the editions yeah, are 51 but, but and 54. You'll often see it with the, just the title page that just says the Christian Book of Concord, right? That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Google Books sometimes gets a little tricky. But that is significant. We don't give them a lot of credit for that, you know, being being real tra- trailblazers there. But of course, before and then after them, there's no itching hurry to translate the symbolical books into the vernacular of the United States I mean, for some time. Yeah, that's right. I, I want to say that Jacob's Book of Concord, which is mainly a production of the Philadelphia Seminary, is the end of the 19th or the very beginning of the 20th century. So it's you know 40 or 50 years later until you get another English edition of the Book of Concord. The Henkel edition, uh, the, the Tennessee Senate's edition, is a production. They get men from throughout the, the United States to, to work on the translation with them, especially for the 54 edition. They intend it to be for all Americans. And it's, it's also a development because in the history of American Lutheranism, generally confessional subscription for ministers is to the Augsburg Confession and Luther's Small Catechism, which if you know your Lutheran history is the case also in the Scandinavian countries and the the other confessions in the Book of Concord understand themselves to be expositions of the doctrine of the Augsburg Confession. But in order to nail things down more precisely, the Tennessee Synod expands its confessional subscription to name every document in the Book of Concord specifically in order to be clear. I think it, this is especially important with the controverted issues of the Christology and the doctrine of the sacraments. In order to be especially clear about what it means to be Lutheran, that means to subscribe to the entire Book of Concord. With the press, they're going to also be producing tracts and pamphlets um, outlining these views and explaining them as well. That's a right. lot of them, well, I guess That's all right. of them are yep. in the public domain now, and really they're quite readily accessible for those who would want to read them. Yeah, and a lot of them are going to be on on issues that you know, if you live in America, even still today, are going to be things in which the Lutheran church is very distinctive. And if you were born Lutheran, it's going to be difficult, you know, when you encounter somebody that wasn't. And if you weren't, you you will have wondered about these things yourself. Issues of baptism, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, the Lutheran teaching on who Christ is as God and man. So they're still very relevant. And hey, if you'd like to um, find some of these things or having trouble looking for them, 
Come over to WordFitly Posting on Facebook. That's WordFitly Posting with a P. Join the group, ask questions, and we'll be happy to get some links and other things sent your way. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. This is a word fitly spoken. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Coons talking Tennessee Synod. We've learned a lot in this podcast. The history, kind of the thought, their contributions as far as publishing in English, very significant for America. But all good things must come to an end. So we're look we get about a what what would you say? A hundred years or so with the Tennessee Senate of Blessed Memory. What led to that downfall? Yeah, it's a complex story because not all of it is clear, partly because Socrates Henkel, the writer of their history, supports some of the, I think, rather unfortunate direction that they take in the 1870s and 1880s. In the 1850s, they became very close to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod to the extent of exchanging delegates to one another's synods. C.F.W. Walther, the founding father of the Missouri Synod, wrote about them very warmly, commending them for their position on subscription to the Lutheran confessions. It's hard, I think, for people in the present day to realize how geographically isolated not only Appalachia, but even major parts of the country could be from one another back then. So there is some exchange of delegates between the LCMS and the Tennessee Synod prior to the Civil War. But as you heard in the intro to this episode, something that the Tennessee Synod only wrote about in 1870, five years after the war's close, could they really, I think, reflect fruitfully on it and publish something about what had happened to them. It's hard for people to understand not only the isolation, but also the devastation of the American South during the Civil War. And during that time, they grow, I think, for reasons that are very humanly understandable, much closer to the other Lutherans, the other Christians in the South, because they are entirely cut off from the rest of the country, and especially in Appalachia, which if you have ever been there, it feels easy to be cut off from the rest of America even today. 
That's why we went and why we stayed. <laughs> during during the Civil War, they grow much closer to the other Lutherans in the South, and they also observe in the other Lutherans in the South, which form the United Synod of the South, or the General Synod of the Confederate States of America, at least that's its name for a certain period of time. Hmm. They they grow closer a ring to it, you know. <laughs> they they grow closer to them and they they observe in them a movement to a greater Lutheran confessionalism. It's not really remarked upon in the record, but all of a sudden they're exchanging delegates with these people with the Synod of North Carolina from which they had come out and they're accepting, you know, warm regards from presidents of things like church colleges and the seminary. I mean, today, I think it's merged with Lenore Rhine. I'm not real sure where it was exactly in 1872 or whatever, but maybe Newberry, South Carolina. I don't, I don't remember exactly, but they, you know, they're sort of cozying up to representatives of things like general synods, even if only of the South and centralized institutions. And the only explanation that I can figure for this is both a hope that, you know, the, these other men's claims of fervent Lutheranism are actually true and a feeling of closeness to them because of shared human suffering. Right. Yeah. That will bring you closer. Yeah. The, the people to whom they are theologically closest are undoubtedly the Missouri Synod at that period in time in the 1860s, 1870s, going into the 1880s. But they are cut off from the Missouri Synod by war. I mean, they they can't even get to their fellow Tennessee Synod members in Virginia. And the right, closest right. Missouri Synod people for during the American Civil War are in Baltimore, Maryland. So they definitely can't get to them. So there is an isolation which also eventually induces a theological change, not so much in what the Tennessee Synod personally does, but in how they look at other people. Well, now this gets a little tricky in, in the region we're talking about. Do you think Reconstruction played much of a part in this, just considering what states we're dealing with? It's not quite as severe, say, in that part of North Carolina. Nevertheless, it's there, Tennessee, certainly Virginia. So not only do you have the war, but then you have its aftermath, and then you have the policies of Reconstruction. So I guess you have this cultural divide growing, too, on a national level that's actually further exacerbated by the war and then reconstruction. Yeah, that yeah, no that's that's definitely correct. They have a they have a sense of themselves as separate from other people outside the south. Yeah, and and it's and it's good to remember that, you know, they for a few years there, they are part of a separate nation. I don't in their minds. I don't care really what you know your opinion is one way or the other about whether it was a legitimate nation or not but they're quite in their conception they are quite literally those in the in the secession states their mentality is that they are a separate nation so psychologically that's going to do something and certainly ideologically that's going to do something and those divides still exist right yeah i mean most of the churches that were Tennessee Synod are going to end up in first the United Synod of the South, and then the United Lutheran Church in America, then the Lutheran Church in America, and today the ELCA. 
And, and all of that is because of the sense of separation from the rest of the country. I mean, in the first generation of the Tennessee Synod, you know, you have people who are still born in Pennsylvania and who are yeah. in, I mean, the, the, the Book of Concord edition that they produce is really a joint work of them and several Pennsylvanians. Yeah, you know, it's interesting Lutheranism, say, versus Presbyterianism in the United States to where to this day you still very much have Northern Presbyterianism and Southern Presbyterianism. And it it's a little more blended, obviously, than it was, you know, two centuries ago. But they never really had that ethnic, that shared ethnicity that they could yeah, sort of... Solidarity. You know, right. Yeah, appeal to quite like the Lutherans could. So even... Even after, you know, say you've got Reconstruction, you've got that separation, you know, isolation, say, from the Missouri Senate and other, you know, confessional bodies. But then they become, you know, they're sort of finding these people with the name Lutheran, Lutheran branding, for lack of a better word. And then that ends up being ultimately kind of what unites them. And and then what do they have in common? Well, this shared heritage, whatever that looks like, you know, whether it's necessarily Germanic or if it's quite simply they have the same books that we do, even if they don't quite hold them the way that we do. Right. And yeah. and so you and so you've seen the example time and time again then that when you become unequally yoked with the world, then the leaven of sin comes in and you find that the heirs of the Tennessee Synod have apostatized. Well one I mean once you once you lose that intense ethnic identification which is which is largely preserved by the German language and you do because i mean the tennessee synod has names like mccray and blaylock and lots of very non-german names in the ministerial roles in the records once you lose that then the thing that makes you jointly lutheran will be actual contact with each other and actual doctrine and practice that is similar and they can sense that, or they at least want to sense that in other Southerners. And they've lost that contact, certainly with Pennsylvania Lutherans. And then with the people who are literally their descendants, who moved especially to Missouri early on, 1830s, those people in 1872 form first the English Synod of Missouri. And then in 1911, that becomes the English District of the Missouri Synod, the LCMS. So their descendants are largely in the ELCA, but there are some churches both in North Carolina. Yeah, so so the faithful remnant became the English Synod, which became our English district. Yeah, large I mean I mean largely. There are there are some in North Carolina. There are some in North Carolina that are LCMS that are not English district, but the founders of the English district in 1872 are Tennessee Synod people. I mean, that's what they are. And they tried to join the Missouri Synod, but the Missouri Synod had a different linguistic policy where all business was conducted in German, all of it. So they said, you know, form your own separate synod, whereas the Tennessee Synod had been officially and in everything bilingual, um, which, <laughs> right. which, was, which was a different policy. Yeah. Right. But that, that, that segregation was okay. <laughs> but it but it, you know it is you know and we want to finish up talking about you know the legacy that we have for us what can we learn from it you know but i want to kind of preface you know that discussion with this we need to be cautious because fervency 
does not always lead to long-term fidelity and success of generations. You have men who are solidly biblical, solidly confessional, and then in a relatively short amount of time, the Senate has fallen away. And how, you know, how does that happen? There's a great legacy for us here to learn, and we're going to end on that. But there are some cautions here in the history of the Tennessee Senate. What do you guys think about that? Isn't that just the book of judges played out in American history? There one we go. generation arises yeah. and then another one apostatizes. So <laughs> I, there's nothing unusual about that. <laughs> right, right. Well, but you're assuming that the audience has read judges. <laughs> I should hope so. <laughs> it's in there. It's free. Read it. Take up and read. There's more. There's more to the book than Romans. Actually, if you read Romans, you'll find the same thing. Kind of funny. The only little hints there. You'll find this throughout a lot of books of the Bible, but particularly Judges. Pick it up. Read it. You can do it in a day. Promise. But anyway, yeah, you're absolutely right, Zelwyn. That is that is what we continually see. How can we avoid that? I I think the confusion that they that they have is a confusion which the general council will also have in the early 1900s as amalgamation is pushed with the United Synod of the South and the General Synod, which is largely Northern. That is the desire to see the best in others, which is laudable in a Christian with other Christians, but that desire overwhelming and and paper confession, things, documents, and official statements overwhelming what is actually believed and actually preached and actually done. And the distinction is that in its early history, the Tennessee Synod was not content with what people said. They were content only with examining what was actually done in the church and aligning themselves only with people who actually practiced Lutheranism. By their end, they they are content merely with the United Synod of the South's saying, well, you know, we believe the same as you do. And they say, okay, well, then you're good to go. Yeah, we see this too. Now we're back in, into the Old Testament again, but after the period of exile, you know, Israel is, they're no longer pagan quite like they were. Okay, but then if we read the prophets, what do we find? That now they are sort of following the law to the letter in places and obeying the, the, the Sabbaths and, and following the commands, but only in that sort of, superficial way. And we can find that with confessionalism too. And it's like you said, and it's like the Tennessee Synod Fathers say, uh, a paper confession really isn't worth anything, right? And you can you can go through the motions at the right time. You can, you can give your yes and amen and say your vows at your ordination or installation and not actually mean it. That what matters is confession lived, right? And and so that's something we constantly have to deal with. And that's something that really puzzles me, too, is it, we all have various kinds of lust. But the lust I don't understand is wanting to belong to a group that you don't agree with and wanting to lie to God and, and say that you teach or confess something which you don't. I don't understand that temptation there. Well, isn't it isn't it really just the temptation, I mean, of a worldly draw? There we go. Yeah, unpack it. Yeah. You see it in you see it like with higher education and the the increasing desire to have degrees rather than preaching, for example. You see it in a desire to 
uh, be attached to other Lutheran bodies and will kind of figure out the way to do that. You see it in a desire to, I don't know, just be accepted. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, yeah. There, there's all these different motivations here, and so therefore, the ordination vows or or the solemn call, you know, that we all undertake as ministers of the gospel under the great shepherd Jesus Christ, that just becomes a hoop to jump over to get to whatever your ultimate inferior goal is, whatever that may be. I I, I think that what you see in the history of the Tennessee Synod is a vastly different idea of what the church is over against both their early antagonists and much of American Christianity, their environment. They believe, the Tennessee Synod believes that the church is those who believe through the word of Christ in the work and the sufficiency of Christ, that the church is constituted by the preaching of the gospel. And therefore, that the thing that is actually important in the work of the church is the furtherance of the preaching of the gospel and the accuracy and the clarity of the preaching of the gospel. Their opponents find doctrine to be largely irrelevant beyond a certain very bare minimum because the ultimate goal for the opponents, whether it's in the general synod or the founder of the General Synod, Samuel Simon Schmucker, desired to constitute an evangelical alliance, which would be a kind of pan-Protestant nationwide church, potentially even maybe a state church, depending on people's politics back then. Right. I mean, Schmucker, you know, is a master of the theology of equivocation. Nothing foreign to us. We, we see this as well today in certain men. Yeah, so they're pushing against that great temptation, which says, hey, which is the temptation of the Antichrist, right? Come, follow me. Let's all become one big group. And uh, let's just kind of all pretend that it doesn't that it doesn't matter. Or as if what we confess has no consequences, as if it's all just sincerity. I mean, yeah, I mean, the reason that the Tennessee Senate is OK being small and being not prestigious is because they don't really see it as relevant to the gospel. And for them, they're organizing the church around the gospel, which is why they send their pastors and deacons out the way they do. It's also why they believe that the polity that they have adopted with pastors and deacons and congregations and then synod as advising and furthering that work they believe that that polity is actually scriptural because they believe that the scriptures also organize the church around the preaching of the gospel. If your goal is to have as large an organization as possible, then you're going to have to make certain things like confession or local work less important because your ultimate goal is to have a, as big an organization as possible. And the Tennessee Synod sees that as contrary to the polity of Scripture because they don't see anything organized in Scripture beyond pastors, deacons, and congregations. I mean, it's really, it's rather refreshing, right? Like to put it in our, in our parlance, they, they had no desire to want to be the Southern Baptist Convention. No, they didn't they didn't want to be anything big. They didn't want anyone to take notice of them especially. And they they also 
and I, we'll talk about this more in episodes later on when we do some of David Henkel's work specifically, they saw the desire to do anything, especially in a minister, to do anything besides proclaim the gospel as leading to antichrist in the church and tyranny in the state because the gospel would be pushed aside in the name of the power that the clergy would exercise, both in church and state. If I may, is this not just Philippians 3? But what things were gained to me, I count as loss for Christ. Doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, and, and so on. You know it. I mean, this is, this is the faith of the apostles lived out in men not so far removed from, our, from ourselves, not so far removed from our time. And the, the, the sacrifice and the fervency were not emotions that they just kind of ginned up corporately and then kept going for a while. What I want people to understand is that that spirit arises out of their understanding of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a Lutheran Christian, to confess Christ because of those things, because of what scripture lays out. That is the pattern of life and the pattern of church life, which is induced by being a confessional Lutheran. So the way that they are they see as being because of what they believe. All right, gentlemen, any final words? Take a look in the show notes if you're interested. You're going to find there a link both to the work on which we base this episode and also the big compendium volume of David Henkel's writings, which is really their chief theological legacy on which we'll base some future episodes. So you're going to want to pick that up and get into that as we go forward. All right, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you want to know more, check us out wordfitlyspoken.org or facebook.com slash wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you, and God bless. The obituary of Reverend David Henkel... This much esteemed and venerable fellow laborer, having finished the work assigned him by divine providence, departed this life, June 15, 1831, at nine o'clock in the morning, to the great grief of his friends and relatives, age 36 years, one month, and 11 days. He was born in Stanton, Augusta County, Virginia, May 4, 1795. His last illness was dyspepsia, which disabled him from officiating in a public capacity for the term of nine months. He bore his afflictions with a perfect resignation to the will of his divine Redeemer. He embarked in the cause of his blessed Savior when a youth, A.D. 1812, and we are happy to say, to the praise of this worthy servant of Christ, that his assiduity and vigilance to study and deep researches into the truth of divine revelation have seldom been equaled by any. He remained immovable in the doctrines he promulgated to the end of his life. This venerable servant of the Lord 
had to endure many trials, crosses, and temptations, but he maintained his integrity through them all, trusting to the promises of his Redeemer. And notwithstanding the difficulties he had to encounter, he left a bright example to succeeding pilgrims. His ardent desire for the promotion of his Redeemer's kingdom and his love of truth caused him to submit cheerfully to the difficulties connected with his official labors. When on his deathbed being interrogated by his friends, whether he still remained steadfast in the doctrines which he had taught, he confidently answered in the affirmative, being again asked, which he was heard to utter, whether he feared death, he replied in the negative. The last words which he was heard to utter were, O Lord Jesus, thou Son of God, receive my spirit. And in a few moments, expired. <laughs> 